interesting. See, obviously, he's not a he's not a Yimby comedian. No, of course. I don't know if there are any. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it would find be us that... those Yimby comedians. I don't guys. know if it would even be that funny. Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America or right there on your modern podcast app. Thanks to Podcasting 2.0. I'm one half of your host, the I.L. Ososki, checking in on the mic. And as always, I'm joined by my trusty colleague, David Clement, on the other side. David, sir, how goes it? Uh, it's going well. It's going well. Um, a lot to talk about politically. Oh, boy. Um, oh, boy, indeed. Oh, I, let's, oh, uh, boy. I want to go ahead and preview our... Uh, we, we'll have a guest up for the yes. next segment. Uh, just give us a little bit of the preview of what we're talking about, what we're discussing. Yep. I think it's incredibly pertinent uh, for all ears, whether they mm-hmm. happen to be uh, Bald Eagle or Maple Leaf, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. We have uh, Michael Diamond, um, a veteran of several uh, conservative leadership campaigns over the years, um, and the principal of Upstream Group talking to us about all things um, Aaron O'Toole, uh, his ouster, um, the upcoming leadership race, what the prospects are uh, for the party. Um, so, yeah, stay tuned for that. It's a, it's a doozy. Um, but, man, there is a lot for... I mean, it feels like this happens maybe like once every five or six years where the U.S. media system looks to Canada and asks what's what's going on. (laughs) And right now with, I mean, you have the trucker protest in Ottawa, which is still ongoing. And then you have these new like trucker blockades at various border crossings. Um, And there's just a lot to unpack there. Um a lot to unpack there. Uh, has there been any coverage of it in, in Europe? Probably not, but... Oh, of course there is. And oh, there's is a it? lot of uh, solidarity, um, let's call them honk-honk uh, events that are happening across Europe. Um, but, you know, I will say, I will hand it to the Europeans, particularly the Dutch. Uh, the Dutch and the Belgians, I think they have started, or they've been doing these kind of protests for a long time. But mostly they'd, they'd head out to the capital on their tractors. Uh, a lot of it related to agriculture stuff. Um, a lot of it, which uh, you know, was not covered in the correct way, but when the Paris uh, Climate Conference and the Climate Accords came into force in many European countries, a lot of the farmers were told they couldn't use you know, this particular fertilizer anymore. They had to measure how much nitrogen, you know, their, their stuff, how much methane they have in their farms. And like many of these family farms that have been in existence for hundreds of years were basically bankrupt because they couldn't afford it anymore. So they did mount a lot of a sort of, we'll say, tractor convoys uh, to Amsterdam or to Brussels and um, pretty much exactly the same. It did not reach the level that it has in Canada uh, where, you know, I, I head in the car and I listen on the radio and I'm getting you know, daily updates about what's happening. So uh, not not at all from any uh, sympathetic ear. It's very much a Justin Trudeau line of there's a lot of wackos and crazies that are out there um, closing everything down. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's complicated. So the Ottawa protest is fundamentally different than the border protest. Um, the Ottawa protest is inconvenient um it's probably time for them because they're not on parliament hill they've actually like locked down streets 
um, where they're not accessible and things like that. Um, but what's going on at the border, I think, is far more problematic because they're literally stopping goods. Like anything that was supposed to cross at one uh, blocked border now has to use a different bridge, which can often be a different city. It's causing rerouting, um, and it's probably going to make all the supply issues worse. And it should probably be like very much illegal to do that, in my opinion, to block um, the border like that. So two very different uh, protests. Very quickly, though, I will quote um, the great scholar and political figure of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, who, who did say that the, quote, the whole point of protesting is to make people uncomfortable. Activists take that discomfort with the status quo and advocate for concrete policy changes. To folks who complain, protest demands make others uncomfortable. That's the point. Well, yeah, I mean, politically, it's, it's pretty much like we're all hypocrites now. Um, because on the, on the right, you had conservatives who would be very rule of law and law and order in regards to indigenous protests or when they would lock down or block roads uh, for pipeline infrastructure and, and things like that, traditionally left-wing protests, who are now like maybe a little soft on what's going on at the border or what's going on in Ottawa. And then the flip side is you'd have the liberals and the NDPers on the left when things would get out of hand at various protests, um, basically say, well, you know what, it's supposed to make people uncomfortable because we need people to think about these things. And now they're the ones who are like, nope, send in the military, revoke the driver's licenses of anyone who's there, re- revoke Lord. their business licenses. And it's like, we're all here. If they, if they have children, you know, send in the, the children's services or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, like, we would just a lot of really... It's really exposed the hypocrisy on both sides, and it's made me very uncomfortable. Um, and and I know we talked about this all. The pendulum swings both ways, but like in all seriousness, can you imagine? Like, if you're if you're a liberal listening to this, imagine and then insert the name of the conservative politician you dislike the most, having the power to revoke the driver's licenses of people who are at a protest, revoking the business licenses of people at a protest. That is an incredibly dangerous precedent to set. Um, We're in a very bad illiberal moment, I think, just overall. I, 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 don't know, I, I don't know if that is because of sort of Donald Trump entered the arena for the entire world to see, and for some reason, illiberalism became... You know the new fun thing to do, uh, but well, it's, it US. seems to be more blazon. Ah, well, I think he opened an entry regardless, basically in any country, right? Yeah, and I think we've seen that in the response. I'll use the U.S. as an example, where like there's a growing movement on the right, the national conservatives, um, the natcons, um, who I'm very much allergic to. Um, who it's like every time the left proposes something that is like insane, like a huge overreach from government, they kind of do the same thing. Like they're not the defenders of limited government anymore. They love big government. They just want it to do different things. Like they want it to force you to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance or insert some other silly nonsense. And it's like... So it's kind of odd because I don't... I know that a lot of listeners uh, to this program don't like our, our, our Twitter talk <laughs> whenever we are commenting <laughs> yeah. uh, sous-text of what happens on Twitter. 
But oddly enough, I had one of these tweets on the National Conservatives, and they were talking about uh, one of them, who I won't name, but you can go to my Twitter feed and see, uh, talking about how there is a Supreme Court case about whether or not public school students should be forced to say the Pledge of Allegiance. So whether the state can compel speech. And this unfortunate fellow said, oh, well, that Supreme Court case, which essentially codified free speech, that case was wrongly decided. And I, from my, uh, I guess the way that I crafted it, I'm not making like a, hey, this is not against, you know, this is against our side. Or I just said, hey, what happened to the right? And I got catapulted into the leftist Twitter sphere. And it's a crazy world out there, David. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean? Like they well, were all of the comments and no, everybody agrees. Oh, yeah. And I've gotten all these likes and retweets and comment, you know, people commenting on it. And it's like, well, what do you expect? <laughs> Republicans, you know, all this and it's like, well, maybe if they didn't, you know, all this kind of maybe if they didn't deny the pandemic, you know, all this kind of stuff. <sighs> it's uh, it's a bit crazy to see. And then I saw it being floated around. You know, some of, some of the leftist guys, and you go and click on people's, you know, profiles, and they all have rainbow flags and, and BLM and stuff. So it's, it's a bit interesting. I, I guess uh, I don't intersect uh, with this world often enough, uh, but perhaps I shall just do what the other grifters do and, and wade into those waters every now and then. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're building bridges. You're building bridges. Uh, am I, though? <laughs> no, you're not. Yeah. I mean, it, there's a, a particular skill in doing this, and there's a lot of online personalities um, who do this very well, the outrage politics. You know, they mm -hmm. understand the algorithms really well. Um, that's kind of the, the Charlie Kirk model, this turning mm -hmm. point mm -hmm. dude who just comes up with these super simplistic, idiotic statements all the time that anyone can refute. But it's like just, you know, three lines blah, 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 and then just enrages people, you know, there's a whole cycle, and we're back at it again. I, I tell you, yeah. David, it's uh, it's definitely a strange world out there. It's, a, yeah, very strange, very strange. Um, what else do you got? It's a strange what world out there. <laughs> Before we go to our guest, what else do you got that's really grinding your gears? I got a good one for you. Okay. Um, I don't know if you're going to see this one coming. You might. Um, it turns out there's a brand new NIMBY on the block. Oh, no, I saw Not this. in my backyard. No. We're talking about Dave Chappelle. Oh, I so know. This is an uh, article from Vice. Small town kills affordable housing plan after opposition from Dave Chappelle. This is in Yellow Springs, Ohio. They rejected a few dozen affordable housing units attached to a new subdivision because its most famous resident lobbied hard against it, threatening to no longer be the town's benefactor if it passed. So apparently he's got a couple of businesses, he's got some properties there, and he basically said he did not want to have that. Look, I've, quote, I've invested millions of dollars in this town. If you push this thing through, what I'm investing in is no longer applicable. And they can what? come and buy all this property from me if they want to be your benefactor, because I no longer will. Yeah, I mean, what are his investments that would be ruined by having a f more housing units? Uh, he plans to open a restaurant and a comedy club in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and he's actually received zoning variances from the city council, so he, he's no stranger to the inner workings of city council and zoning laws, <laughs> and uh, he, he's actually gotten some of these changes uh, just for his businesses, which is good for him, uh, but not a, a big fan of yeah, the, these affordable housing units. Isn't that just a red herring? I mean, people in affordable housing units 
eat food too. They probably enjoy comedy too. Like the presence of other people or more people is going to make his restaurant less profitable. Like what are we talking here? I don't understand. Yeah, I think it's it's just further development. And uh, uh, I think that's kind of what they, they didn't want. You know, uh, it's it's kind of what happens all the time, but uh, it's very interesting to see. Obviously, he's not a he's not a Yimby comedian. No, of course. I don't know if there are any. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it would <laughs> Find be Find us that. those Yimby comedians. I don't guys. know if it would even be that funny. No, he's a NIMBY comedian, apparently. <sighs> and uh, talking, you know, there's a lot of, People who are very sympathetic to this view, who usually attend most of your local uh, municipal uh, council events and, and who usually do this. It's not often that uh, Dave Chappelle is there and uh, making that case. Um, so, yeah. Unfortunately. I thought you would like that one. Yeah. Well, I don't, but uh, yeah, unfortunate. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that's a tough one. But no, you, you, Dave Chappelle, he can't be right all the time. No, you cannot, and I think that goes for absolutely everybody. Uh, we all have uh, people that we look up to who uh, fall, and uh, frankly, I'm seeing this a lot more. There's so many people that I respect, that I like, you know, whether I, I follow their YouTube channel or I mm -hmm. like their political commentary, and they will just have one take or one view that, to me, is so asinine and crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't mean I discount them. You know, we can all have differences, and I, I don't think there's anybody who... You know, punches every single one of my tickets, uh, but still, that's... Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the only person I agree with all of the time is myself. Very true. And uh, me on every other day. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Unless we're talking about uh, whether Congress people can uh, invest. <laughs> And we okay, so, well, let's <laughs> talk about that real quick. we we got about a minute left here. So uh, apparently Nancy Pelosi is going to push forward on this bill that would, um, I, we're not really sure exactly what it would be, but it would ban active uh, stock trading by uh, people who are in Congress and their staff. Uh, obviously very rich coming from uh, Madame Pelosi, who herself has a very um, bustling portfolio that that is highly watched and regarded across financial and political space. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to go through. But Her uh, new nickname should be the Wolf of K Street. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. I don't doubt it. I mean, she's still hanging on. I mean, the assumption I've read is that basically her people are going to water it down as much as possible. Yeah. Um, all we have right now is that, you know, all of these trades must be public record, and it's only in general amounts. It's not in the actual amount that, that people are uh, investing in this stuff. So you can't exactly see how much, but you can see, you know. Yeah. That she threw down five million, you know, to to do Amazon or anything else. Oh uh, yeah, so much more to come. Uh, great interview coming up here on Consumer Choice Radio. We'll be right back after this. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga nine sixty AM and the Big Talker. Uh, very excited uh, for our guest this week to talk all things uh, Conservative Party, Conservative Party leadership race. We have uh, Michael Diamond, the principal of Upstream, Upstream Group, um, and a veteran of, of leadership campaigns himself. And so, uh, Michael, thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks for having me. So right off the bat, let's go back to the ousting of Aaron O'Toole. Um, not necessarily a common occurrence in Canadian politics. It's quite rare. It has happened before, but it is quite rare. 
Um, why do you think there was such pushback against O'Toole? Well, and, and I, I think it's actually uh, a good point to make how uncommon this is. In fact, the way Mr. O'Toole was removed as leader uh, of a political party in Canada is unprecedented in, in modern times in Canada. In, in, in other uh, similar democracies, the United Kingdom and Australia, namely, uh, this sort of practice of a parliamentary caucus ousting the leader of a political party is fairly common. I mean, we've seen it in the last... That decade and a half in Australia, where it's like a, a political hot potato tossing between past and former, uh, former leaders and current leaders and, and vice versa. But it's never happened in Canada. Uh, and it was a rather new thing. In 2015, the uh, Parliament of Canada passed a piece of legislation called the Reform Act, which empowered uh, members of Parliament to petition uh, the chair of their caucus to have a vote on the leader uh, of the party. And that provision's never been used to deal with the leader of a party until uh, last week with, with Mr. O'Toole. So it was, it was quite unprecedented and it really, I think, took a lot of courage by the uh, parliamentarians who petitioned because uh, uh, political leaders in Canada have uh, a basically unparalleled amount of power within their political party to expel people from the caucus. That's been a little bit impacted by the Reform Act uh, to uh, expel people from uh, being members of their party, to expel people from being uh, potential or future candidates uh, from the party. Uh, any candidate requires a signature from, from the leader of their political party. So the leader has a lot of power. So the, it, it required a minimum of uh, 25 members of the caucus, and they actually got over 30, to sign a letter to have the vote. And and, and then two-thirds, uh, although it only required a simple majority, it was closer to two-thirds who voted to uh, uh, toss uh, Mr. O'Toole from leader. So completely unprecedented. And I think, you know, uh, what, why did this happen? It was a drip, drip, drip of uh, factors. You know, Mr. O'Toole's team wanted to blame, uh, they called it the angry Shearites, blaming uh, uh, supporters of the previous leader. That that might have been a factor, but it was only one factor. Because if you look back to right after the election, Mr. Shear had a lot of uh, uh confidence still within within the caucus. People were uh, publicly supporting him. Uh, there was a definitely ridicule against those uh, within the party, uh, both parliamentary caucus and uh, activist class who were questioning his ability to stay on his leadership. But then when he refused to change, he refused to admit that the previous election was a failure, which it was. He got fewer votes and fewer seats than his predecessor and failed to form government. He uh, failed to reverse course on some of the uh, policy changes he made uh, namely uh, support for a carbon tax, which was very offside with both the caucus and the membership. And, 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 and when he refused to change his ways, I think caucus expected that, uh, you know, after, uh, after a uh, election defeat, there has to be time for reflection. And if a leader is going to stay, they have to, I think, demonstrate how they'll do things differently in order to win. Mr. O'Toole failed to do that, which motivated his caucus to take action. Hmm. Wow. Well, Michael, thank you for that. And also thank you for those, those bright yellow colors you're wearing. Uh, which uh, those listening won't be able to, but uh, we'll see if we can do with the video. So the, the question that I have on that is, from what I've seen from uh, sort of the inner circle of journalists working in the nation's capital uh, up there in Ottawa, uh, there is a lot of connection to what's happening with the trucker convoy and the idea that, you know, there's this is some kind of perilous time for democracy. And at that exact moment, uh, the Conservative Party is seemingly falling apart or having, you know, a sort of shifting of the chairs. 
How relevant do you think that kind of commentary is? Do you think it has anything to do with it? Do you think it's just an opportune time? Or is it just sort of a, a happy accident that all of this is happening at the exact same moment? Look, I think that, that analysis, which I've certainly read, is complete another cod swallow from a group of uh, journalists who don't really understand the inner workings of the Conservative Party. Uh, the effort to dump Mr. O'Toole much predates the uh, arrival of the convoy in Ottawa. In fact, it's my understanding that the letter was signed before the convoy uh, showed up. In any other circumstance, if it was another party, the Parliamentary Press Gallery would be talking about how wonderful it was that the caucus uh, uh, stood up for democracy and the rights of parliamentarians by ousting, uh, ousting the leader. But there's always a, a different uh, uh, set of rules for a Conservative Party in, in, in this country where media will be a bit more negative. And furthermore, Mr. O'Toole, as a social liberal, was uh, the type of conservative who the press gallery and and you know small l liberals at cocktail parties in the nation's capital would say to other would say to them, you know, if if all conservatives were like you, we'd actually, you know, we'd consider maybe voting possibly in the future for the Conservative Party. Uh, so he was popular amongst those who were never going to vote for us. And I think they'll use anything to try and make his ouster look like an alt-right radical fringe element within the party. It's simply not true. So on that note, one of the, the criticisms of uh, the ousting of O'Toole um, from some, and I'm wondering if, if you think that this carries weight, is that the ones who are really leading the charge are generally speaking conservative MPs who are in forever seats. It does not matter. And they're, therefore they are maybe disconnected from the tone and approach that is needed to win a general election. Um, so I'm curious as to what your take on that is, because that's, that, that was one of the counter arguments to the, the ousting of O'Toole. I mean, I, I'd say the problem with that analysis is that under Mr. O'Toole's leadership, all the parliamentary caucus was left with essentially was the quote unquote forever seats. We we lost, we got fewer seats than we did in the previous election. In the history of the Conservative Party of Canada, there's only been two elections where we ended up uh, with fewer seats after the previous uh, after election day than the previous one. It was 2015 when under Stephen Harper, we lost government after over a decade uh, uh, in, in the halls of power. And after this last election where we weren't in government. So, so w w there's very few seats left uh, for us to lose. So, I mean, uh, I don't think that's uh, actually, you know, uh, fair. We don't know who signed the letter. You know, I have a pretty good idea. I think most commentators who are paying attention have a pretty good idea. But one thing I will say from some of the names that I know were on that letter, uh, it wasn't a cohesive group of uh, caucus members who think that they're from one faction of the party. It really did reach beyond different elements of the party because Aaron O'Toole had a uh, unprecedented panache to um, actually alienate all sectors of the party between flip-flops and his aggression towards them. So so it's not as cohesive of a group that took him out as the angry Shearites, as his uh, leadership team tried to push out uh, the night before the vote. It, it was much more fractured. Uh, and, you know, I mean, you know, when you when you're down to uh, a fewer seats than you were in the previous election, you're 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 looking at only having safe seats. So I, I don't fault the caucus members for trying to help us get a leader who can grow in the next. Election. And you know, at this time, it's uh, very interesting to see that you know the Liberal Party is also having its own issues, uh, not just with all of the protest in Trudeau, uh, but we did see uh, Joel uh, Lightbound, I believe is his name, uh, who had openly criticized sort of the stances of the government being a, a bit more. 
apprehensive to continue many of the restrictions that are in place across the country. Uh, in terms of, of how the Liberal Party views this, you know, is it, is it basically, are they just kind of clapping, which is how the, uh, the initial reaction seemed to be amongst uh, many of the elite? Or are they actually fairly worried about what this leadership contest could mean uh, for their stakes in the next election? Look, they certainly should be uh, unhappy about it. I think, you know, Mr. O'Toole's continued leadership was, in my opinion, good for uh, the Liberal Party, which is one of the reasons why I opposed his, uh, is the reason why I opposed his continued leadership, because I think it's important to get a conservative government uh, elected. Uh, I've seen a lot of liberal jubilation over the potential leadership of Pierre Polyev, uh, uh, who's without a doubt since Stephen Harper left has been, even though he has served under now four leaders, two permanent and two interim leaders since Mr. Harper has left. Uh, throughout that time, he has been, in Mr. Harper's absence, the most popular conservative member of parliament amongst conservative members and the conservative base. And I see a lot of liberals very jubilant over the prospects of his leadership because I think they think he'd be an easy pushover. That is very foolish. I would not wish Mr. Polyev to be my opponent uh, in, in anything, frankly. He is a uh, hard communicator. He is a street fighter. He is a man of principle will stand up for what he believes in. And if you look at the beginning of the uh, government of Justin Trudeau in 2015, there were two rising stars in in, in caucus. One was Krista Freeland, who was uh, uh, put into uh, various uh, cabinet portfolios. And and frankly, I mean, you know, I see you're shaking your head, but she is still considered the bright light in that caucus. And the other was Bill Morneau, the, uh, you know, uh, Bay Street wonder boy uh, who who was just, you know, uh, both both attractive on every metric and, uh, you know, fr- very, very wildly successful. Uh, and he was the other one. And as their critics in Parliament, uh, Ms. Freeland faced Aaron O'Toole, and she went on to become the great rising star of the government. And Ms. Morneau faced uh, Pierre Polyev every day. And uh, he is now curled up in a villa that he forgot he owned and didn't disclose. And we is no longer a charity. So, uh, so, so, uh, so I think anyone who wishes Mr. Polyev as their uh, opponent, their hubris will come back to bite them. And on that note, on that note of Pierre, and this is my own anecdotal experience, but I'm seeing people from across the political spectrum, especially younger people in our kind of demographic, who maybe have never voted conservative, who see these videos on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter, and they go, okay, this guy's actually like on point he's he's making like i just think of the video like what is the government debt and it's like they can't answer the question immediately that resonates with a lot of people because they see that and they go okay maybe this guy isn't the the ordinary politician um that we're used to especially in the trudeau era of non-answers and weird platitudes but i'm curious as to see if, if you're seeing maybe that groundswell or that broader support beyond the conservative base for someone like Pierre? You know, on Saturday night when he released his video, which quickly received more views on various social media platforms than a uh, uh, average CFL game, Canadian Football League game would uh, on a on a Saturday night, uh, 
you know, which is incredibly impressive, just, you know, several throughout the various platforms, uh, several millions of impressions. Uh, I, I was enjoying the newly legalized activity in, in Ontario of, of dining in a restaurant on, on Saturday night and was with some friends and we were all scrolling through social media. And we were all surprised to see friends from well outside of politics or context from well outside of politics, be it people I went to high school with who I've never considered to be, you know, politically interested sharing stuff about uh, Pierre's run with excitement uh you know uh, people just various professionals who've interacted with who've had never an interest in politics uh that's been expressed so so I think you're 100% right I think he actually does reach outside of the political class which in a leadership for a potential opponent is very daunting could it be that the issue of inflation which is one that uh, Pierre Poilievre has uh, sort of highlighted over the course of the last few months and has really come to bear here in, in the last couple of weeks we've seen from the figures. Do you think that will be one of the sort of leading charges behind a lot of uh, enthusiasm uh, for sort of his leadership? Because he, he was able to hone in on that. He was able to question, you know, the government very early on about it. And it is something that impacts Canadians in every single province, uh, and especially those of, of the lower economic ladder. Do you think that's sort of the, the main driving one? Or does it have to do more with personality? Are there other issues you think that kind of buoy that? Look, I think we have to dive into to what inflation means to voters. It's obviously very complicated. And, you know, inflation for me, you know, in 2008, when I, I first noticed it as a young person living at home was when, you know, the loaf of baguette I like started to cost uh, a bit more because I'm sort of, you know, out of, uh, I, 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 I'm not your average person. But I think it's something I've seen David talk quite a bit about on social media, about where, uh, where Pierre's appeal will be. And that's housing prices, because there's no one in Canada, there's very few people, especially in the greater Toronto area and some of the major metropolitan areas throughout the country who is young, who isn't negatively impacted right now by, by housing prices. And this is something that both on the inflation side and directly on that policy, Pierre has been talking about. And I think David hit the nail on his head uh, on the head uh, when he identified that as being, I think, a, a unique uh, selling feature uh, for Pierre. And it's great to see someone in the federal government finally talking about uh, ho housing prices, frankly, because we see, you know, uh, municipal politicians talk about it. And it's usually you know, a lot of it is their fault on the supply side. And we see provincial politicians talking about it on some of the taxation side and some of the red tape side in empowering municipalities more. But there's obviously a huge federal component here, and it's not necessarily a tax rebate or a, a program for first time buyers. There's there's other tools. There's actually one tool that they have at their disposal on this. So it's very good to finally see a member of parliament uh, and a, a possibly a candidate for prime minister talk about that issue when others have been so scared to for years because it's been easier to avoid yeah i mean I, I totally agree michael it has been a pleasure to have you on consumer choice radio and we will have to have you back as the uh, leadership race unfolds thank you looking forward to it and we're back on consumer choice radio a uh, great interview with michael diamond uh, all things conservative politics here in canada looking forward to having him back on the program uh, as this leadership race unfolds and we see really what happens, uh, a lot can change between when uh, when things get moving and the ultimate end goal. I've seen that firsthand uh, in the past. And so, yeah, um, just a fantastic conversation. Yeah, very true, David. There's going to be a lot more to come with that. Um, in the meantime, though, i got to ask you, have you tried a delicious bowl of gazpacho lately? Oh, I saw this. L arguably the most insane member of Congress, probably 
I would say, I don't know, post-civil rights era is Marjorie Taylor Greene. And she's got this video. She was with, was it an interview with Fox News? I, th- uh, I think or it was I like don't know where. Maybe these, it was just a, one of these the, ONN things. Let me see yeah. if I can get the audio here. Do you, uh, yeah. Uh, we'll mess around with that here. Uh, give me once. <laughs> yeah. This is going to be fun. <laughs> you hear that? And it's time yep. to make it in. All right, let's, let's Not start it off. Not only do we have the DC jail, which is the DC gulag, but now we have Nancy Pelosi's gazpacho police spying on members of Congress, spying on the gazpacho police. <laughs> so, and what she meant to say, which is both ignorant and silly, is Gestapo. Um, but she didn't say it properly. She said gazpacho, which is a cold soup. <laughs> I, maybe this has to do with you know Seinfeld uh, being picked up again by Netflix or something like this. Uh, the soup Nazi. I'm not exactly sure, um, but the uh, they say gulag. I love that uh, little southern accent as well. My yeah, and um, one person that if I can do a good segue here, that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and we didn't we might have discussed it a little bit about two months ago. So one person who has been sparring a lot with uh, MTG is our own U.S. Representative Nancy Mace. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. They, they've battled quite a bit. And um, uh, I think Nancy Mace had the tweet, uh, something like, bless her... Uh, bless her heart. Heart. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Which, she, for, she for people who are not Southern, um, is basically like giving someone the middle finger. <laughs> Very true. And uh, I think that took place in very early January. It was a long, a lot of it had to do with, uh, you know, January 7th and anniversary and all of that. But uh, Nancy Mace is a congresswoman from the state of South Carolina. We've previously had her on this program, which I'd uh, recommend you head on over to our YouTube page or look in our archives to see that. Uh, So she is in the news once more. I decided to write up something because, as we discussed last time, uh, she has introduced this bill uh, to basically legalize cannabis throughout the United States and to give states more power. And then all of a sudden, what do we hear on the Bill Maher show? Nancy Mace, I think. Yeah. She's a Republican. Yeah. She's the one who, I said this years ago, I said the Republicans are going to steal this issue from the Democrats if the Democrats don't jump on it. She's the one introducing legislation to nationally make marijuana legal. So then she's getting praise on the Bill Maher show, not mm-hmm. the uh, number one place for, for Republicans or GOP. And uh, we saw in the last couple of weeks as well, Amazon and their public policy team endorsed the bill formally. Uh, obviously, our organization, Consumer Choice Center, is very much in favor, and uh, we've written that publicly. But uh, really interesting to see, because I think, um, unfortunately— reading a lot of bills and being very familiar with the legislative process, you know, there's a lot of wins that each political side wants to take, and the Democrats are really trying to own this, uh, so they probably will try to freeze out this bill, even though there is, you know, growing support. Yeah, but at the same time, how long do you need? It's not that difficult. Like, well, you got to talk to all of the people, you got, I mean, I don't, it is the most frustrating thing ever, and it will be looked looked on after. I, I'm going to say in December, after the Democrats get shellacked, uh, they'll look back and say, "Oh my God, did we waste all of our time when we had control of all of the organs of government to pass our agenda? Did we really sit around and do absolutely nothing and just blame the red team?" Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
Bill's probably right. I mean, you take too long. This is a popular issue. They're going to steal it from you. Um, and I think the U.S. is probably better for it. Um, I don't know. I mean, imagine... I don't know what the congressional timeline looks like, right? Is this something that rolls over through the midterms? Um, I don't know how that works. But, I mean, if it does and the Republicans... Well, um, yeah. Well, Mace, she introduced it uh, just a few months ago, I think back in November. Um, so, I mean, she's only in her first term, which makes this all the more incredible. Uh, by the way, I did not know she was um, actually the first female to graduate from the Citadel, which is a military academy down in South Carolina, and the first Republican woman elected from South Carolina. But I would say in her favor or sort of some positive news is that even in the ultra-conservative state of South Carolina, uh, which, you know, is borders North Carolina where uh, this program broadcasts and, and where uh, we've been, David, together at my, my family's uh, lake house, uh, they actually did pass medical cannabis after much opposition from, you know, the GOP and the GOP control absolutely everything, but they were able to whip the votes and uh, South Carolina is one of the harshest states in the country when it comes to cannabis. Uh, but actually, they were able to move the medical bill. Uh, they were able to pass that in the House. So there are some positive movements. So I, th I see that as very good. I really like uh, to see Nancy Mace uh, being able to elevate and uh, hopefully get this message out. Hopefully, we can get her on the Bill Maher show, David. I, I yeah, know that we're both great. on that list and we're, we're lobbying hard, but I think she could be a good sweetheart on that. Yeah, Bill, if you're listening... Bring Nancy Mason. Problem is, they probably party too hard, and she probably wouldn't want to go back to uh, to Congress. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's you know she's doing a lot of stuff, and there is a new. I mean, I researched a lot of stuff just to to write this article. So she's got a new primary opponent who? Uh, in South Carolina who actually. Um, so her name is Katie Arrington. Mm -hmm. uh, or Kate Arrington, she actually ran in the race after Mark oh. Sanford left. Yeah, she was um, the one who for lost. that congressional district. She ran. Yeah, she ran. Um, she was sort of the Trump person. She ran against uh, Joe Cunningham, a Democrat, and then the Democrat won that seat. Uh, that's in Charleston, South Carolina. And then Nancy Mace came back and was able to win that next. Cycle. Yeah, so she primaried Sanford to then lose the general election, and now wants to try and primary. Mace to what, go ahead and lose the general election again? Like, I mean, even you... worse. I, 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 I don't want to do this because we're playing politics left and right. I do want to play her video, uh, sure. her sort of because she directly calls out Mace and discusses cannabis. So let, let's uh, let's hear this. Public servants and stewards of their community. It was never about personal gain, celebrity status, or self enrichment. It was supposed to be about the people you represent. I'm Katie Arrington, a servant conservative with one mission, and that is to prioritize the people of South Carolina's low country by advancing President Trump's America First agenda. I know you like that. Let's be honest. Nancy Mace is a sellout. She sold out the low country. She sold out President Trump. She is more interested in becoming a mainstream media celebrity than fighting for the people she's supposed to represent. Selfies with Carol Baskin, Monkey Island, legalizing marijuana. Why is she prioritizing that over the skyrocketing inflation, high gas prices, and economic security for the low country? Is Nancy Mace high? 
What a, I just come on. stop it there for you. Come on. <laughs> I mean, it had all the references, too. It had <laughs> Carol Baskins in there. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah. Brutal. It's cheap, but also, like, she's not loyal to Trump. Are we still doing? I thought this was over. Well, I, I mean, thought the whole uh, Trump loyalty test was was done. It was checked out the window. You would you would assume that we would be beyond that. Like, there's no need to like. Oh, let's see what the big man has to say. Who cares? Like, it, it, I don't know. The pandering here just seems so strange. And to speak like Trump. She's a loser. Why do we like losers? She literally lost a seat <laughs> that should be as safe as you can imagine. And it's like, what? Not, not only did she lose a seat that had been held for decades, she then, it, it was then flipped back by a more reasonable candidate like Mace. So it's like, you suck. And the person who replaced you fixed and cleaned up your mess, and now you want another kick at the can. What, to lose again? Mm. Might as well pour yourself a nice little bowl of uh, gazpacho after that one. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's uh, incredible to see, and, and we'll, be, we'll be following that as much as we can here on Consumer Choice Radio. Again, you guys can always go to our uh, website where we have the archive of all the other interviews uh, that we've done, all of our previous episodes, uh, if you would like to listen to the podcast version, please do subscribe and send us those Satoshis if you have a modern podcast app like Fountain. I'm still trying to get David uh, on one of these, but uh, yeah, taking a while. Yeah. It's, it's hard, man. It's very difficult to get people to change their habits when it comes to digital things, particularly it when it comes to the phone. Yeah, you get pretty entrenched. So we're working on it. Yep. Yep, we sure are. Well, that's the the good thing about consumer choice is that you can actually try out all these different things. Um, there's all kinds of, of stuff that's been happening uh, in the U.S. and the European Union on, on trying to essentially cut the heads off of uh, many of the tech companies and the services that they provide. Uh, but, you know, the case I always make is, you know, there's plenty of decentralization out there, guys. You just got to turn your head. Yeah. Just scroll down the page a little bit, and you've got all kinds of things at your disposal that you can have fun with. But uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's hard. So yeah, I, I yeah, think you, the, the tools are getting better. Things are improving. Um, I'll I'll put you on the spot here, consumer corner. Are you uh, you got any cool gadgets? Any cool uh, any cool things that you're using that are uh, of interest? Well. Not using, but I will say I have been a frequent customer now the last week and a half of 3D printers. Ooh. Uh, so uh, I think I mentioned on the on the last show that I would like to, um, you know, try to get my climate numbers up a bit. So I have a Bitcoin <laughs> miner. <laughs> and uh, I've been buying, you know, different parts. You know, there's all kinds of tubing, exhaust. And there's a couple guys I connected with who've 3D printed me. Uh, the, these kind of nice fan shrouds uh, that are, you know, small little things you attach to the fans so that you can get the exhaust, you know, it doesn't matter. But uh been really interesting to see the 3D printing space. Because you remember, you know, that was all the hot buzz many uh -huh. years ago. But I haven't seen too much. And, you know, I've waded into some of these used market sites, you know, something like a Craigslist. 
And there's actually guys who, you know, just do this full time. They just um, download all the 3D printed models they can find and print them up and sell them on these sites. I, I'd say it's a pretty good hustle. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Have you seen this applied to bigger things? Like I, I always get caught up in the videos where they use essentially like a macro size 3D printer that uh, dispenses concrete and they'll build like a thousand square foot home in two days. Yeah, I've like, seen that. I haven't oh. seen the, yeah, I haven't seen any of that for sale. I, I see a lot of stuff that are mostly parts, you yeah, know, all kinds yeah, of things, yeah. which I think is pretty cool and is is an interesting idea of getting off of the Chinese supply chain, actually. Yeah. If yeah, we're able yeah. to 3D print a lot of these parts. And, Especially you know, if you little, can get it cheap. Yeah. And I don't know what the raw stuff is that you got to put in there. I guess it's some kind of resin. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I guess that. it just depends what you're what you're making like how durable does it need to be yeah i i looked into this you know obviously I, all i wanted to do was uh to uh, get a ghost gun back <laughs> back <laughs> in the day <laughs> which uh we do not uh, promote on this station or do we have a referral code uh but you know that's where the scare was many years ago the idea of 3d printed guns yes uh, i i don't know if there's been anything new about that no i it's uh, it's it's fallen off after uh the person who was championing that cause got caught up in some some legal was, uh, troubles. Co- uh, Corey something, yeah. I Cody. don't know. It might have been a little bit of a, a little bit of a hit job. Yeah, Cody Wilson. Yeah, Could be a little bit of a hit job. I know. Um, there's uh, there's all kinds of stuff out there. I, yeah, I haven't followed that in any way. Um, in any way, but uh, yeah, yeah. 3D print. I mean, it would be nice to 3D print stuff. We'll have to talk about that more on a on another episode. Um, Great. Another great one. Thanks for joining us um, on this week's episode of Consumer Choice Radio, and we will uh, be back with you all next week.